Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. It's like it's just around the corner. I hope you're excited. I hope you're looking forward to uh, celebrating the birth of Christ and being with family and friends. I just want to wish you a Merry Christmas. If you're new, if this is your first time here, welcome. My name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here. And I'm uh, just really glad that you're joining us. Uh, before we get to the sermon for this week, uh, I want to take a minute and I want to invite you to join me and hopefully a bunch of others to read through the Bible together, cover to cover, in uh, 2022. Uh, you know, when we preach through the Word of God, we take a, a section and for six or eight or 10 or 12 weeks, we really go deep in it. But if you're counting on that to make it all the way through the Bible, I mean, we got 20 or 30 years to go to, to, to do it that way. And and it, I don't know if you've ever read through the Bible cover to cover in a year before, but there is something about getting the big picture that just gives you a, a sense of the, the breadth and the width and the depth and the majesty of what God has done in the past and what he is doing and what he will continue to do. And it is a great experience to do. And so starting this year on January 2nd, on January 2nd, it's a Sunday, uh, we want to start together, uh, whoever would like to join, uh, to read through the Bible cover to cover. And we're going to use a reading plan uh, developed by Nikki Gumbel. If you're not familiar with Nikki Gumbel, he is the guy who wrote and who teaches the Alpha Course and he and his wife, uh, they sometimes, uh, well, they always write sort of a little section before the reading to kind of explain what it's about. And then we'll read, you know, a couple of chapters from the Old Testament and one or two from the New Testament and maybe a psalm or a proverb. And over the course of the year, we'll make it through the whole Bible. And so if you want to do that, I want to invite you. I mean, uh, there's a couple of different ways you can track along. One is to download the app. Uh, the app is actually called the U version, Y-O-U version. It's a Bible app. It's totally free. There's no ads. It's just out there so people can have the Bible on their phone and read it. And there's a place where it talks about reading plans. And if you just look up Nikki Gumbel reading plan, you'll find it. And it allows you to track sort of the, you know, day to day. So if you fall a day or two behind, it's no problem. You can easily catch up. Uh, and the other, the other advantage of that is that they actually make it possible for you to listen to the Bible. So if you want to do this while you're on your commute or you're working out or you're walking your dog, you can listen to this guy. He's got a great voice. He reads the Bible. And it's just a chance for you to, to follow along. So that's one way that you can follow along with us this coming year. Another way is we'll have a link on our website to, you know, a place where you can track along. And the third way is just good old paper. And on January 2nd, if you want, we'll have a, a paper, you know, outline of where we're going to read. And we just want to invite you. Invite you. Come join us. Uh, you know, you do it at whatever time of the day you feel like. I'll do it at whatever time works best for me. But there is something about doing it together. And we're not, you know, we won't be chasing you down. If you start and don't finish, no shame, no guilt. Uh, I understand. Uh, but the invitation is like, make the commitment, join us. And if you do make it all the way through, when you do, man, you just look back and you see what God has taught you and, and the patterns that you've seen and new insights. It's really rich. So the Bible, cover to cover, January 2nd, 2022, Nikki Gumbel, you and me, let's do it together. Okay, so we'll talk more on January 2nd, but I just want to put that out there. Uh, all right, we are in our uh, Advent series. We've been talking about the name and the titles that were given to Jesus at his birth. And so far, we've talked about Jesus as King and his Savior and Emmanuel. And today we want to look at one more title for Jesus. It's the title, Lord. And so I want to read for you again Luke's account of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2, and then we'll talk about it. Here's what it says. 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I will bring you, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This title, Christ the Lord. There, there is no other title that is used more to refer to Jesus in the New Testament than the title Lord. In fact, it's used over 600 times uh, to refer to Jesus. Another 100 times in the New Testament, it's used to refer to God himself. And then there's a smattering of places where it's used simply as a, 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 a term of respect for different individuals. But Jesus is Lord. I mean, this is central to what the New Testament teaches. In fact, Jesus is Lord is the most fundamental, is the most basic creed of the early church. And to this day, it remains the basic creed of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he writes this in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then again, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, he writes this. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. See, to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord is the most central tenet of the Christian faith. Now, the, the English word Lord that we use to refer to Jesus, uh, it, it simply means the person in authority, the, the person in charge of whatever the realm is, whether that's, uh, you know, the, the home or the community or the entire nation. In fact, uh, the, the, the word Lord comes from the old English word, chlafford. Uh, Good thing we're not using old English anymore. Chlafford, which was later assured to la ford and then to Lord. And it simply meant keeper of the loaf. In other words, it was the person who was responsible for distributing food to the people. Uh, and it really, it simply meant the person in charge. And when the translators of the Bible first translated the Greek version of the Bible, the New Testament, into English, this was the word that they chose for the Greek word kyrios, Lord. And, and kyrios simply meant the person who was in charge. Again, in charge of the household, in charge of the business, uh, in charge of the government, and the highest person in the, in, the, in the setting, in the land, was given the name, the title Lord, which meant that in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, the one who was king of kings and lord of lords was Caesar. Caesar was Lord. And, and at the time of Jesus, it wasn't just any Caesar. It was Caesar Augustus, Caesar the Majestic. At the time of Jesus, that Caesar, Caesar Augustus, was probably, well, in all of Roman history, he is probably the greatest of all of the Caesars that ever ruled over Rome. And it's no accident that Luke begins his account of the birth of Jesus by referencing Caesar Augustus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
And he wants us to, to contrast and to compare Caesar as, as Lord with Jesus as Lord. And of course, Caesar, I mean, when he sets out a decree that everyone goes to their hometown to be registered, everyone obeys, including Mary and Joseph, who make their way from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, where Jesus is born, who is Christ the Lord. And it's interesting to note that, that when Jesus is born, he's not a Lord. He's not like King Herod, who was a Lord who served at the pleasure of, of Caesar. No, no, no. The angel announces that the child that is to be born, that, that Jesus Christ is the Lord, as in King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The, the baby, the baby that was laying in a manger was a greater Lord than the king, than Caesar, who sat in all his majesty on his throne in Rome. Which means that when you say that Jesus is Lord, that means that, that you are acknowledging that he has ultimate authority in your life. When, when you pray to Jesus, dear Lord, you are acknowledging the, his authority in your life. You, you are submitting your life and your heart and your will to his will. In essence, you are communicating to him, I am going to obey what you tell me to do. And we should not take that lightly. I mean, at one point, Jesus says to his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what it is that I say? So, he, you know, don't call him Lord unless you are serious about being obedient to what he calls you to do, to, to what he commands you to do. That's what it means when we say Jesus is Lord. But that's not all it means. In fact, if you think that that's all it means when we say that Jesus is Lord, then you are missing half, more than half of what it means that Jesus is Lord. If you think saying Jesus is Lord simply means that he's the ruler of your world and your life, you're not catching what it really means when the Bible says, when we say that Jesus is Lord. Let, let me explain. Let me first start by, by reminding you of one more aspect of the title of Lord, and it's probably not news to you, but, but, but you remember back in Exodus chapter 3 when, when God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. And he called on Moses to go to Egypt and to rescue the people of Israel from their slavery there. And Moses turns to him and says, God, who should I say sent me? What, what's your name? And, and you remember, this is what God says. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God tells Moses his name. He says, my name is I am, literally Yahweh. But he also says, I am the Lord. And in fact, the, the Hebrew people connected deeply with obviously both of those names, but they chose most of the time to refer to Yahweh, to refer to God as the Lord, because out of deep reverence for his name, out of the name Yahweh, they didn't want to mispronounce it. They didn't want to take his name in vain in any way. And so all throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as the Lord. And when that Old Testament was translated into Greek, the word that the, was used in Greek was Kyrios, Lord. And this was not lost on the early church, on the apostle Paul and the other apostles. And thus, th thus, when, when we call Jesus Lord, we acknowledge the mystery that in Jesus, 
God came and dwelt among us. That in Jesus, Yahweh himself took on flesh and dwelt among us. The Apostle Paul, I mean, he explains it this way. Referring to Jesus, he writes this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. In other words, Jesus is the origin of all things and he is the end of all things. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Nothing in all of creation finds its meaning outside of Jesus. Nothing in all of creation exists outside of Jesus. He's the agent of creation. He's the author of all that is and ever will be. So, so that means that to confess that Jesus is Lord is to proclaim that, is, that Jesus is Lord, not just over your personal life, not just over your little world in which you live and, and, and walk and follow him. It's to declare to believe, to understand that Jesus is Lord over every corner of creation, from the tiniest atom to the furthest reaches of, of the universe. He is Lord over your life, and he is Lord over every aspect of all of this culture in this world. Abraham Kuyper, the great 19th century theologian, he explains it this way. He says this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And C.S. Lewis, he writes it this way. There's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Abraham Kuyper, he, he went on to, to, to argue that the dominant, the, the, the dominating principle, the primary way that we should understand the claim that Jesus is Lord is not primarily when it comes to our personal salvation, although that's very important. Obviously, in our personal lives, Jesus is Lord. But he argued that the primary way that the Bible understands and teaches the lordship of Jesus is that he is, as part of the triune God, is, is the sovereign God over every aspect, all kingdoms, every corner, both visible and invisible of all of creation. In other words, all of the universe and all of life falls under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what you mean, or at least that's what you should mean when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It, it, because that's what the early Christians died for. You have to understand that in the, in the, in the Roman world, when the Christian faith began. There were all kinds of little religions all over the place that taught personal salvation. There were all kinds of little religions that taught in it, that there was an afterlife. And the Roman authorities couldn't care less. They didn't care what you did in your private world if you believed that there was an They couldn't care less. So they didn't persecute any of those little religions. But the Christian faith, they did. Because Christians proclaim that Jesus is Lord over all, not just their private world. And that was a threat to the authorities in Rome. That's why they required, one of the reasons they required everyone to come and to proclaim at the temple, at some little temple, you know, burn some incense and declare that Caesar is Lord, that he controls all of life and all of culture. And the Christians would not because they believed Jesus is Lord and therefore they were persecuted and many died over this very central concept. Jesus is Lord of all of life, not just our private personal walk with him. 
And when you understand what that means, when you grasp the meaning of that, that has profound implications in your life, well beyond just your personal private walk with Jesus. It has implications for how you live and what you do in every aspect of your life. If Jesus is Lord, there is not a spiritual world that you, that you follow Jesus in and some secular world that you go and do the rest of your life and he is Lord over it all. Which means that if he is Lord, if he is truly Lord in your life, then his lordship should extend much broader. The, the way that you see the way that you understand the world around you, the way that you think about and live every aspect of your life must be done in light of the fact that Jesus is over it all. That he is the ruler and sustainer of this world, that he is Lord. And, you know, this is an area in the, in the life of the church that we have not done a good job of teaching. You know, certainly in the, in the church in North America, we've been very strong about, you know, reading your Bibles. And you should. I want to invite you again. Join me. Let's read through our Bible next year. We stress reading your Bible and prayer and devotions and, and being in community group and, you know, and evangelism. I mean, these are all good things. But sometimes we have failed to emphasize and to teach the other side of this, what it means that Jesus is Lord in our public life as well. So let me help you understand what it means. The fact that Jesus is Lord means that, that, that since everything that exists came into being at his command and is therefore subject to him and, and therefore finds its purpose and meaning in him, then every topic that we investigate, whether it's the economics or, or the environment, whether we're, we're, we're involved in health care or education, whether it's business or the trades, if it's psychology or the arts, it doesn't matter what it is. Every aspect of our world, if Jesus is Lord, then the truth, then the best way, the way of wisdom, the way of excellence is found ultimately in seeing and understanding that part of the world as it relates to Jesus, in light of who God is. It means that because Jesus is Lord, then every area of life, if we want to know what genuine knowledge really is, it means understanding the laws and the, and the principles that God has laid down and living in light of those. So for us as Christians then to, to turn our back on the culture around us, to say, look, the culture around us is, I mean, that, that's a secular world. I go live out there, but it's not really my thing. I mean, I just, I survive out there and I live in this sort of bubble of my Christian world that, that is, that is to uh, turn our back. It's a betrayal of our biblical mandate. To, to live that way is a denial of God's sovereignty over every area of life. If we live that way, then we don't actually understand the lordship of Jesus Christ. Instead, instead we should plunge into the world around us wholeheartedly. The, the, the early church father, Augustine, said, all truth, all truth, he said, is God's truth which means we should fear no area of culture. We should, we should be leaders in our world. In fact, B.B. Uh, Warfield, another uh, famous theologian from the earliest 20th century, writes this. We must not then, as Christians, assume an attitude of antagonism toward the truths of reason or the truths of philosophy or the truths of science or the truths of history or the truths of biblical criticism. As children of the light, we must be careful to leave ourselves open to every ray of light. Let us cultitude an attitude of courage, 
None should be more zealous in studying them than we. None should be more quick to discern truth in every field. This is not for Christians to be lukewarm in regard to the investigations and discoveries of our time. It is for us to push investigation to the utmost, to be leaders in every science, to stand in the van of criticism, to be the first to catch in every field the voice of the revealer of truth, who is also our redeemer. In other words, what Warfield is saying is that we, because we understand the lordship of Jesus Christ, should be the first, the most zealous, the ones who push the investigation and the study of all of life to see where it reveals truth. Because in the end, it will reveal the truth of who God is and what he's doing. So in the natural sciences, if we understand that God created this world, the physical world, and put in place the the laws of nature, We should not fear science. Indeed, we should be at the forefront of studying science, confident that when we find the truth, that indeed it will match, it will complement, it will point back to the creator. When it comes to the social sciences, we should not be lagging behind on that. We should be at the forefront seeking the principles of social life that, that is taught in the word of God and applying it to human flourishing. And what we will find and what the empirical studies so often confirm is that what the Bible teaches is actually the best way to human flourishing. And when it comes to the arts, I mean, we should be at the forefront of creating great art, of developing great entertainment. And in business world, we should have best practices and and biblical principles and find that in all of these things, God is redeeming the world through us as we seek him. That's the call. That's what it means to understand the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, the letter to the, uh, to the church in Colossae, he writes this. And whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything that we do is to be done unto the Lord. And again, we haven't always done a good job in the church of teaching this. I mean, we all understand about evangelism. We all understand that we have a role to play in sharing our faith, and we should. But there's a second calling on our life. It's the call to cultural renewal. It's the call to participate in what God is doing in the world, in renewing the, 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 the world that God has created. You know, when we think of the sovereignty of God, there are two places that we see his sovereignty at work. One is in what theologians call saving grace, and the other is in what they call common grace. Now, we're familiar with saving grace. Saving grace is when, in the sovereignty of God and by his power, he he transforms someone who is dead in their sins and trespasses and gives them new life in, in Jesus Christ. That's the sovereignty of God at work. But he calls us. He calls us to participate in that process by sharing our faith with the people around us. That's evangelism. But then common grace. Common grace is the, is the sovereignty of God to sustain and uphold this world and to restrain, to, to push back, to temper the forces of darkness and evil in the world. And in the same way, we are called as his sons and daughters, as those who believe that Jesus is Lord, to participate in that process, to, to, to use the skills and the giftings that God has given us in whatever part of the culture that we find ourselves in to bring redemption, and to to live in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord. 
So that's in our families, in our workplaces, as we pursue science and scholarship in works of art and beauty, as we, as we lead businesses and as we lead people. I mean, in every area, if Jesus is Lord and if we proclaim him as Lord, then we need to be living out and seeing his kingdom go forward in how we live our lives. So the question is this, what does that look like for you? How does that work out in the place that God has placed you in the world that you find yourself in? You know, I read a story about a lady who worked at a Planned Parenthood clinic down in the States. Now, if you're not familiar with Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood is an organization that is dedicated to providing abortions on demand. And so this lady worked in one of these clinics referring all these people to get abortions. But she was a Christian. I mean, she went to church. She studied her Bible. She was involved in Bible study. She studied in her church. But she didn't understand this idea of the lordship of Jesus Christ. She, she only got a little bit of it. She understood so that he was lord over her personal life, over her spiritual life, over how she lived daily. But never dawned on her that he was also lord over her work. And it was only when the realization came to her that she said, I can't be doing this. This isn't part of what it means to have the Lord in the part of our, you know, in all of my life. And so she ended up quitting her job. Now, it's an extreme example, but so many Christians, so many Christians have this idea that, that they live in this sort of spiritual world, that Jesus is Lord over them, but that he's not really Lord over the rest of the world. The, 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 the secular world is the place that they go and they do their thing, but, but it's not really their calling. But that's not what it means. Lordship of Jesus means every area. So let me ask you this. I mean, what does it mean to be not just a nurse who happens to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian nurse? How how does understanding the Lordship of Jesus affect how you do your job? How, How does it affect how you make decisions? How does it affect how you see your patients differently maybe than the people around you? How does understanding the Lordship of Jesus affect how you understand health care in general and what, what God is doing to redeem the world and to redeem people's health? I mean, what does it mean to think Christianly about being a nurse? What does it mean to be not just a Christian who happens to be a tradesperson, but to be a Christian tradesperson? I mean, what does that mean about how you do your job? What does that mean about how you interact with the others who are on the job site? What does it mean about how you bill? And again, what, what does it mean about how you think about what you're doing, about, about human flourishing, about you know, building good places for, for families or for businesses to flourish in? I mean, what does it mean if you think about your life as a Christian tradesperson under the lordship of Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian teacher or a Christian artist or a Christian businessman? I mean, how do you think about your life in light of the lordship of Jesus Christ? What are the laws? What are the the principles? What what is the wisdom that makes how you do what you do different than how everyone else does it? Because Jesus is Lord. Because you see, that's the real life implication. That's the full implication of what the angel meant On that night so many years ago, when he declared to those shepherds that unto you is born this day in the city of David, 
a Savior who is Christ the Lord. George, George McLeod tells, uh, calls us to truly embrace the full meaning that Jesus is Lord. Here's what he says. He says this, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace, as well as on the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on the town garbage heap, at a crossroads of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek, at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble, because that's where he died, and that's what he died about. And this is where Christ's men and women ought to be and what church people ought to be about. Oh, may that be the case for us. May we understand that the Lordship of Jesus Christ calls us not just to have a cross over our personal life, but, but to, to, to raise the cross over our city, to raise the cross over our workplaces and our schools and our studies and wherever it is that God in his grace and in his wisdom has called you and I to live. May we make Jesus the Lord in every area of our life because that's what it means. Say, Jesus is Lord. I want to invite you at the end of our time now together to share communion together. You know, we, we share communion together because we believe that Jesus is Lord. And so if that's you, I want to invite you wherever you are to grab some, some elements, something that would represent the body of Christ, some bread or crackers or something like that. And, and then something that would represent the, the blood of Christ, juice or a little bit of wine or or something else. And, and together, we want to we remember, we want to celebrate the covenant relationship that we have with Jesus, who is our Lord. And if you happen to be watching and you, you're not there yet, man, thank you for coming and watching. Thank you for exploring. You know, there's a lot of people in this world that don't have the courage to even explore faith. And for you to come and, and check it out, that's so good. And, but I just ask, I mean, Jesus asked, look, this is something for those who've already acknowledged Jesus is Lord. So if this is you, just sit back, watch, take it in. It's great. For those of you who have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, I want to invite you, first of all, to take the bread, whatever that is, whatever the bread is for you. And I want to ask you to hold that in your hand for a moment. And before we eat it together, I want to I want to ask you again to examine your heart and ask this, is Jesus really Lord in my life? I mean, is he Lord in your personal private life? Is Jesus saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And if that's the case, I want to ask you to repent and say, God, Jesus, I, I haven't been making you Lord in this area of my life or in many areas of my life, and I repent. But I also want to ask you if there is a, a broader area of your life. If you have unwittingly or on purpose failed to make Jesus Lord of every area of your life, if that's the case, I want you to, to also repent. Say, Lord, every area. Okay, so I'm going to give you a moment and then we'll eat the bread together.
Okay. The Bible says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, that he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this whenever you do it in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Okay. And now I want to invite you to take the cup. Whatever it is, again, that represents the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. And again, I want to ask you to just hold that for a moment. And as you do, I want to invite you to praise God. Praise God that Jesus is Lord. Praise God that he is sovereign over every corner of creation. That there is not one square inch in all of creation that Jesus doesn't say, mine. And not only that, but he wants to. He is in a covenant relationship with you. Think about that. The God of all creation in a covenant relationship with you. And so I want to invite you to just take a moment and to just, just, just worship him. To, to just know that he will never leave you and abandon you. No matter what this Christmas is like, if this is the best Christmas of your life or the hardest Christmas you've ever experienced, God himself in Jesus is with you every step of the way. And he is Christ the Lord. So let's worship him. Let's, let's thank him. All right. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it whenever you do in remembrance of me. Let's drink it together. Well, God, we come to you today and we thank you, God. We thank you that Jesus is Lord. God, we thank you that he is Sovereign, not just over our individual lives, not just over what happens next for us, but that he is sovereign, that you are sovereign over every aspect of all of creation. And God, we understand that our world in so many ways is, moves away from you, and yet you, in your wisdom, by your grace, have called us to bring your light and your redemption into every corner of, of creation, into every part of culture. And so, Lord, wherever we find ourselves, would you help us to think in light of Jesus being Lord? Would you help us to see our calling, our work calling, our, our family calling, wherever we go, Lord, in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord? Lord, help us to see and to understand what that means. And may it, may it transform, may it change how we see our lives. And Father, may we live for you in every area of our life. We thank you. We praise you. We give our lives to you again in Jesus' name. Amen.